episode 112 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview of Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson. Radio team, welcome along to episode 112 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness so that you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Welcome along to today's show. I've got to say it's pretty, pretty cool time in New Zealand right now because we're about to head into spring and I've got to say it's quite nice coming out of winter. We've had a pretty tough winter this year. The, the blossom trees are starting to blossom, the daffodils are starting to come out and it's, it's pretty cool times today. On today's show, I've got an interview with a couple of authors, um, Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson, and they wrote a book called The Brave Athlete Calm, the F, now that does represent a swear word, and I have to admit, there are a few swear words in today's show because obviously the book has the title, the word F in it, uh, so you will hear me say the F word in full later on in the show, but it's called Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion. It's an, it's an actual interview that I did for my other podcast, I Am Talk, but it was really applicable to what we talk about in this show here. So I thought it'd be a good chance to, for me to to spread their message to what you you know you guys, because many of you don't, or pretty much the majority of you don't listen to I Am Talk. So that's the reason I'm getting these guys on. And, and I'm about halfway through the book myself, and it's a book that I really recommend. And I'll talk a little. We'll talk about that in the interview. But before we get into that, I just thought I just it's it's been an a significant moment in my life over the last weekend because I've just turned 40 and uh, you know it is funny how um, you know you have these kind of landmarks in your life don't you you have these kind of moments where I don't know just because of the significance of the moment you naturally are going to reflect and so I, I wouldn't say like luckily for me aging at this moment in my life doesn't seem to bother me like I'm not too concerned about turning 40 um, you know, it's just it is what it is. Uh, it doesn't really mean a lot to me. But in some ways, there has been some reflection in my life over the last period. And I think one thing, and this is one thing I often try to get my clients to work on, and it's one thing that, um, you know, like as you age, legacy becomes a more of an important thing. And I'll share a good example of this. One time I interviewed a, a an athlete, Jonathan Brownlee, now, Jonathan, no, sorry, Alistair Brownlee. Alistair Brownlee is the world's best triathlete right now. He won the last two Olympic gold medals. Um, the guy is an absolute rock star. Um, just freak of nature kind of athlete. And he's, what he's achieved in the sport is pretty phenomenal. And I got to interview him when he was a real young man. He came into the sport quite young and uh, managed to achieve you know, significant success very quickly. And I remember we were going to interview him one time and I was pretty excited because to me when you get to interview anybody who's the best at the thing that they do, it's a pretty special moment. And this this would probably be eight, nine years ago now. So this is very early on in his career. And I was pretty excited about interviewing him. And we did the interview and it it was a bit of a letdown. And the only reason I was a letdown was because he was just a young man. Like, he was, there was no real deeper insight that he could give to us or share to us other than the fact that he really liked training and he was pretty good at this thing called triathlon. And it wasn't that I was totally disappointed. There was some value in the interview, but I think I'd put my expectations too high on him regards to 
the kind of philosophy he would have in life. And, you know, I love high-level people, but the thing I think I learned from that lesson was that sometimes people can be highly successful people and not yet figured their philosophy out. Now, in fairness to Alice, I haven't interviewed him recently, and actually I want to try and interview him again over the next period of time because I think he's a bit injured, so he's probably got a bit more time. But I was talking to another another Olympic gold medalist, a guy called Simon Whitfield. I was over in Germany a few weeks ago, and I was talking to Simon Whitfield, and Simon Whitfield is the guy who's just philosophy, man. Like, we just, we, you know, you know what I'm like. Well, Simon's like me times 10, and he's this really kind of passionate man, and he's basically, he, he's you know, he can make a living doing public speaking because of his gold medal. So he lives in Canada, so he basically makes his money from public speaking and probably made good money in his career. And then the rest of his life, he's just deepening his philosophy and understanding of how to bring the better out of people. Actually, I'll do my best to get Simon on the show because him and I, you know, we, we could have talked for hours. It was pretty deep stuff. And uh, he was he was pretty great. But he was saying he just recently spent some time with Alistair Brownlee, went and spent a week with him. And he said it was just the most amazing week because they sat down, you know, they do a little bit of training and then they just kind of dug the deep on this kind of philosophical kind of ways of looking at the world and you're saying that Alistair is this guy who just consumes content around deep level thinking and stuff like that and you know 10 years on from when I interviewed a young man who was really good at something but probably didn't really have a, a foundation of how they look at the world imagine if I got to interview him now that would be a much different conversation and you see that with athletes and it's you know, with people as they progress for life. And and in some ways this 40 moment for me represents that, is that kind of what is my life, kind of question, what's my legacy, kind of those bigger, deeper questions, what are the things that I need to reinforce moving forward, what do I need to let go of? I, I wrote something to our coaches last week actually about this, is this, actually I'm going to pause and I'll come back and read to you what I wrote to my coaches. Okay, so I'm back, so quick pause that's the great thing of podcasting you can pause but I basically just kind of each week we send our coaches newsletter and it's very much informational based but I kind of just wrote this thing that I've been thinking about recently and, and you'll kind of see where I'm going with this and that kind of deep philosophy I'm working about so it's kind of Bevan sharing I've got uh, I've been reflecting I've been in a reflecting time in my life lately it's probably because I'm about to turn 40 this pose process has made me consider why I do what I do and what I should be letting go of in life one of the perspectives that this process has helped me identify is that I am bloody lucky to live a life where people give me an opportunity to help them grow. So many people in this world talk about wanting to help others. Well, I get to do that every day. This awareness has helped me shift my coaching to another level. Now when I turn up to a session, I'm thinking to myself, today I get a chance to help these people find a higher level of themselves. I love this because it shifts how I look at each individual and think about how I can take them forward. What I'm learning is that this is not just the perspective that is needed, it's a commitment to the perspective. Last week when I was taking the race team hill repeat session, now the hill repeat session is a very challenging running up and down a hill, like basically running up a steep hill for five minutes, turning around, going back down and doing that for like an hour. So last week when I was running the race team hill repeat session, I ran up and down the hill for the whole hour, running beside the runners to help them get the most out of themselves. I could have just stood and given feedback on technique and some words of motivation, but when I ran beside them, I knew I was getting the most out of them. After the session, six people came up to me and told me with passion that they loved the session. I don't think they would have said that if I hadn't have committed to my perspective and my commitment to helping them. Some to, um, just something to think about. We are very lucky people. And, and I was talking to the coaches around that there. And the thing that this reflection at this moment of 40 has taught me is that I've got everything I want in front of me. 
And partly my job is to see that it's there and to deepen into it. And I think a lot of people in their life are, are trying to find something. You know, now I'm pretty lucky because I found my passion, which is fitness. I found it very early on in my career and I was able to make a career out of it. So um, I've always enjoyed my fitness career, but, you know, sometimes you have these moments like, you know, at 40 in the fitness industry is old and definitely I do an aspect of my job where I'm very much at the last part of that. And so that could be quite a hard thing, but actually I have the thing I want right there in front of me. And when I've been going through this kind of self-reflection, and partly because I'm 40 and partly because I'm, you know, like Alistair Brownlee, maybe have a deeper philosophy in life and what I'm trying to get out of it, I'm allowed, this this reflection is actually making me see that the thing I want is right there. It's I actually have it. And it's not that I just have it, but now that I once I understand that I have it, like I shared with my coaches, is that, and I'll read this again, you know, my awareness has helped me shift my coaching to another level. Now when I turn up to a session, I'm thinking, today I get a chance to help these people find a higher level of themselves. And what I'm learning is that I'm not just, it's not just this perspective that is needed, it's the commitment to that perspective. So that when I turn up to these sessions, I go, wow, I've got... Um, I've got a chance to do the thing that I love. It's, it's right there in front of me. And I'm going to commit the best of myself to that. And it was really quite cool because on Saturday, we had another running session, a really hard run session for our advanced runners. And I saw on Instagram, someone put a post up about it, put a photo, it was pretty beautiful. And they made a comment about my coaching and just saying how everyone said, you know, I seem to manage to give all of them everything that they needed in the session. And it made me feel great. I can't deny it. But it really came because I have this perspective and this commitment to this perspective. And what I'm gaining from that is that, you know, it's not just seeing that I have the thing I want in front of me already. It's allowing me to go deeper into that thing. You know, that so many people when they find kind of the higher level in life, it's about helping other people. And, and I get that opportunity. So how do I do that even better? And, uh, you know, that's something that I've learned about this time. And so I suppose as I talk about this to you right now, have, how much of the thing that you actually really want do you already have? And sometimes, and this is one thing I've learned with a lot of clients, and, and I've done myself, is that I block, or that I block myself, or they block themselves from seeing that they have it. You know, that they might think they're lonely, but they actually really have really good friendships in their life. You know, and if they could allow themselves to see that and then commit to a higher level of friendships, then if loneliness is their thing, it's, you realize that it, you actually have the thing you want in front of you. I had a session with a client a few weeks ago, and they've got two areas of life that really overwhelmed them, and are trying to work on it. And we're like, okay, well, that that's true. You need to overcome these things. But you've also got to spend some time seeing what you do have, because in the first part of the conversation, they were talking about, you know, everything's going really well. And then they went to the areas where they, the two areas they need to work on, and they were making them not see the areas that are going well. So I suppose what I want to share, kind of the message I want to share before we get into today's interview, is that part of your job is to make sure you realize you have what you, or, or to see when you have what you want in front of you. And if anything, once you see that, to deepen that, you know, going back to me and that coaching message I sent to my coaches is that, I'm learning it's not just a perspective I need, it's a commitment to that perspective. So hopefully there's something in that for you because for me this is quite powerful stuff and um, you know I, I want to be keeping living my life in a way where I am seeing the things that I have and, and deepening those because 
that seems to be a pretty good use of my time. Anyway, we're going to get into the interview pretty quickly, but but before we do, I just want to mention the patrons of the show. I've got a new patron this month, and it is, or this fortnight, and it's Esther Chen Green, which is a great one. And now, I don't know what ethnicity is, but when I hear Chia Chen, I, I think of an Asian ethnicity, and Golden, I know, I, I, now I may be pulling this out of my butt, but I know that, I, I feel that gold is pretty significant in the Asian kind of culture. And so I thought, Esther Chen Green, I thought, you are the golden one. So that's why I came up with that nickname. So thank you, Esther. I'm going to name a few other patrons. We've got Paula, the powerful punisher. Paula Green. We've got Marion, the momentum clat. We've got George, the wild bull baker. We've got Mary, I've got the power. And Dave, the governor. Ginger Dave. That's his Ginger Dave. These are all patrons of the show. If you enjoy what I do and you get value from it and you want to support me in what I do, and this is really important because I've got to be honest, at times, this, this show, you know, I'm a pretty busy person, but this show, really at times, it's the patrons who keep me in it. And I love doing this, but it does take up a lot of my time. And, you know, the fact these patrons support me and how they do, it just makes me continue on what I'm doing. So if you enjoy the show and you want to support me what I'm doing, just go to bevanjamesisles.com and it's all very clear on the website how you can become a patron of the show. Anyway, I'm going to put an interview up right now with Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson. They are the authors of The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion. And once again, I'm about to swear in about 20 seconds from now and there might be a few F-bombs in this interview. So hopefully you're okay with that. Here we go. Okay, today I'm very excited to have Leslie Patterson and Simon Marshall, the PhD Simon Marshall, I love the PhD next to the name, uh, and they're the authors of The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down, I can't say fuck on the show, but I probably shouldn't, uh, and Rise to the Occasion, so welcome welcome along to the show. Thanks, Thank Bevan, thanks, thanks a lot. Bevan, mate. Uh, tell us, why did you come up with that, one, that name for the book? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah I can, it. yeah, I can jump into that one. So uh, when I, you know, uh, training full time as an athlete is a tough thing, especially an endurance athlete. So I set up a coaching business way back, um, and decided, of course, with my Scottish background, that I had to call it Braveheart. Um, but more importantly, it kind of, um, I really um, rung true to how I kind of live my life. To have a brave heart, right? To face your fears, to overcome adversity, and um, to have a fighting spirit. So um, the brave athlete seems like, you know, that's kind of who I've become through my journeys uh, and and that's how we've kind of learned um, and, and sort of developed a lot of these strategies in the book uh, and then obviously uh, calm the f down is uh you know we, we take it so seriously sometimes and we're supposed to enjoy it you know this is a well, we take ourselves so seriously that's yeah. the first thing and i think you know sport brings out uh heightened emotions in people and if you know those of you know if you've been around well humans never mind being around athletes I mean it's not it's not a word that's uh, you don't hear very often but it, it gets the emotive part of it of sport but also I think that listen there's a lot of things that we can learn in sport but especially um, that we often take ourselves and the sport too seriously it doesn't mean that you're settling for mediocrity or, or slowness but the fact that one of the first ports of call certainly I'm talking as a sports psychology person is to just you know step away, take a breath and, uh, and, and focus. And so that really kind of speaks to that as well. So, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not for everyone. We've had a few interesting comments about the title, but you know, the content inside we believe in, we, we, we strongly stand by. So we don't think we're using it too gratuitously. So what, what motivated writing the book? 
Yeah, you know, it was um, my athletic career has been been a long one thus far. I've been doing it for like 25 years. And um, when I came back to the sport, I had a retirement phase uh, between the ages of 20 and 25, where I went back and I studied theatre and acting and drama. And the reason I gave up sport to begin with was I was really disillusioned. I went into ITU racing and just the, the, the style of the coaches, they didn't treat me uh, as a person. They treated me kind of as a data point. And I didn't know how to deal with that as a 16-year-old girl. So gave the sport up and uh, uh, went back, studied acting and drama, got really into sort of who I was as a person my emotions, how I thought, how I felt. So when I came back to Xterra or the sport the second time uh, around, I just um, I had a different sense of self. And so really was quite self-reflective about what I was thinking and feeling and how to get the best out of myself and my journey. And I'd come home each night and I'd speak to Sai and be like hey listen this is what I'm thinking and feeling this is sort of what I'm doing and he was like oh that's really interesting the theory behind it is this that and that and so he would really uh, get the science behind what was going on and uh, yeah and, and that's kind of bit by bit we're like wow you know yeah. we started developing all these strategies and uh, that's how that, that was this, the genesis of the book really. And I, and I think from my perspective, you know, working, training as a sports psychology uh, um, expert, that you, you learn predominantly through university departments, through academic textbooks, and you have internships and applied experience. But, but a lot of, when I started to real, work with real people, <laughs> not, not fictitious case studies in academia, yeah. uh, some of these techniques that we were being trained in just didn't, didn't seem to, to connect very well um, with the athletes that I was working with. Either some of them just seemed to, I, I mean, I didn't even believe them. How am I supposed to convince an athlete? So so some of them are, I mean, that's an, partly an artifact of, you know, how science and research progresses, and it's, it's not uh, practitioners that are developing these for the most part. And then meeting an athlete like Leslie, where some of these techniques didn't seem to resonate with her. So it's right. kind of that I always, and I retired from sports psychology, actually, about the same time she did from, her ITU career. And I think from that combination of us talking about on this new philosophy, I knew that something was missing in sports psychology for talking to real people. And Leslie knew something was missing for how people talk to her with some empathy and bedside man and stuff that actually worked. And that really, that combination, that interface is really where the book came from. And, and, and writing the book, you know, as you, you know, as you sit down to write a book, what were you hoping the objective was for the reader to get? What you know, like we'll talk about some of the kind of strategies yeah, and yeah, yeah. philosophies in the book. But I was just kind of, you know, as a writer, you're always trying to spread an idea, aren't you? Um, and yeah. you know, so what was the kind of outcome you would want someone to have got when they read your book? So ultimately, we start with the basic premise of do you have thoughts and feelings that you don't want? And, and ultimately, our goal was to help athletes stop having so many thoughts and feelings that they don't want, because that's such a common thing. We've coached, you know, hundreds of athletes. I've experienced, obviously, and been around a lot of athletes and people in general. And uh, they have a lot of these thoughts and feelings they don't, they don't want. They don't know why they do. They feel like they are crazy for having them. And then they have no solution. Uh, to help them out so ultimately it was to make these athletes healthier and happier and as a consequence perform in their sport but also perform in their right, lives right mm. and, I think, and, I, and one of the things that we really wanted to do was to meet athletes where they're at 
emotionally and physically. And so one of the things that we noticed that athletes don't come to you and say, you know, you need more, you know, emotional and, and psychological strength to run a half marathon. They say, I need to harden the fuck up. I seem to throw the towel in at mile 20 or whatever. And so the way that they would describe their issues were really, you know, they, 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 they were influenced by so many factors, lots of different techniques could help. So we wrote the book around these 13 things or these 13 conundrums that all came from our athletes or the athletes that we've consulted with. So they didn't really come from us. But so that's why we have some good confidence that most athletes, when they look at them, say, you know, I recognize myself in maybe three or four of them or two or three of them or 10 of them or so on. And then trying to unpack those in terms of what's the psychology behind it, what are some practical strategies to help you cope with it and exercises, and then a case study with an athlete that we've actually worked with uh, in the book to show you how we how we do it. But the entry point, the starting point for all of this is let's talk about the thoughts and feelings that you don't want. And that's really a nice place to for, for us all to start because we don't have to then immediately zero in, zeroing in on just how you feel on the pontoon before, you know, 30 seconds before the gun goes off. It can be, you know, a whole host of things about how they're coping generally with their, their sport and their training and their athletic lifestyle. So, yeah. Well, it is a very, I'm about halfway through the book and it is very much the thing I really like about it is, you know, you're introducing concepts, but you're also giving us the tools to be able to work on, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure one thing you will be encouraging is that athletes put the time into the work on of the mind side of the game. You know, one of the downfalls, you know, this is an Ironman audience we're talking to here. So one of the downfalls of the Ironman athlete is they just think training is always the answer and to, to spend that time outside of it and apply some of the kind of methods, which we'll address soon, um, it's such an important facet of growing as an athlete, isn't it? Right. it? It is. And I think, you know, we often think of sports psychology or these mental skills as things like, you know, visualization and goal setting. And, and, the, and but really the role of how you think and feel about your sport permeates in, in many and, and shows its face in many different ways. Athletes who are consistently terrible with their nutrition right now, they know they might intellectually know what they should be doing, but they consistently make bad decisions mm. at the same point. So those also have psychological or emotional bases. And so the, the exercises are partly also to deal with those sorts of things that athletes might not immediately connect that are are related to their mental attitude toward their sport so yeah it shows itself more than just the conventional strategies that we typically think of when we think of sports psychology I was just gonna say uh, you know I think um, we're, we're moving into a place I think in our culture you know of mindfulness of understanding mm -hmm sort of happiness, what does that mean, sort of existential crises. And, you know, I mean, you look at the demographic of Ironman athletes, right? It's kind of wealthier person, you know, a strive for success, mm -hmm. A-type personality. And, you know, why is it never enough? All of these kind of concepts keep coming back. And so if you don't address those things, not only is your sport going to go sideways, but chances are your personal life is, your business life is. So really we see the sport of Ironman, the sport of triathlon, of endurance sport, is kind of a forum to investigate all of these things that are occurring, you know, from a mental standpoint. Mm -hmm. So how did you define the 13? Like how did you go, I think you said you were seven. Yeah, like how did you break those down? So what we, we had a bit of a brain dump one evening and said, OK, let's talk about we knew when we thought initially started talking about the book, what, what are the kinds of things that we hear the most from our athletes? And we just right. it was like a, a, a blur on a page. And we wrote about 25, 30 of them down. And then we some of them were, you know, overlapped. Over, and, yeah. so on. and then they. 
then they kind of reduce down to these 13 themes. And then we try to use the words that athletes typically, how they describe these issues to us. And that's what became the chapter headings. But there are many more in there. Like there's one that, 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 that we didn't fit in the book, mainly through page space, was to do really with motivation. Um, and and the re- one of the reasons that kind of got the, 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 the chop in the end is because often motivation um, isn't uh, uh, – a top priority for our for the kind of athletes that we see because generally the long course athletes and I'm they're extremely dedicated they're not usually suffering from mm. they have trouble getting out yeah. of bed in the morning now there are some things that help with that but most of the point it was these strategies are kind of either reeling people back a little bit physically and how you do that it, coping with the emotional and, and psychological aspect of it or things like coping with injury and and so on so yeah we'd love we'd love to like include about five or ten more because there are plenty of them and mm. this certainly isn't exhaustive but these are the ones that we certainly see the most uh, others are the most prevalent in our experience so listen let's, let's, let's look at the few of them i've just got the kind of chapter headings in front of me the, the i feel fat yeah. one is one that uh, I'm, I'm a running coach and it's and i actually target a a much easier demographic than the Ironman. Like I've got a group that's very much beginner runners. Um, but even people who I get up to half marathons, they, they kind of, I feel fat thing's always a big issue. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, you know, obviously being a woman, I think, I think the female demographic is a little bit different. Although we do, you know, there's plenty of men that have issues like that too, of mm. course. Um, but, you know, I grew up in that environment, right? I had an eating disorder, you know, I, I, I deal with body image issues all the time. Um, and it's affected my health. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of close to my heart, but also I'd say that every single athlete that we've spoken to has some kind of issue with it. Everybody, mm-hmm. um, male, female, old, young, professional, beginner, um, because we're, we're bombarded by images of, you know, what we need to look like, especially in our sport, unfortunately. Um, and, it, and it also um, it attracts that sort of neurotic yeah. type of personality. <laughs> yeah. um, there's yeah. actually science to show that yeah, it does. Yeah, there, there is. So, you know, um, you put all of those things together and you get, you know, body image issues and exercise addiction uh, all, all together. So, um, yeah. And, and it's a sport, uh, fundamentally, where weight matters. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, I'm um, doing better if I'm so, leaner. Yeah. Right. Just so it encourages exactly. a, a negative so behavior. Can't, you can't really get away from that. And, and the sport culturally celebrates it. I mean, you look at the underpant run in Kona, right? Mm. If there's nothing more that celebrates the lean body ideal, yeah. then it's that. So so I think your athletes are bombarded, not only with those messages that, you know, leaner, what's per kilo, you can, if you can't do much about your power, you can do something about your yeah. kilo. Uh, so, and I think that that is constantly ever, always ever present. And then combine that with the personality types that are attracted to long distance endurance activities. So there is more neuroticism, there is more anxiety, anxiety uh, generally and that we know that those people gravitate to the sport rather than the sport turns them into that mm. so it's sort of a breeding ground for these thoughts and feelings as well in addition to it being culturally celebrated and reinforced or rewarded i should say at a performance level so it kind of creates this little you know melting pot of of, of trouble <laughs> up the road and for, for people who have worked, you've worked through with that how do you help someone with that because because like I I love this idea of how much time do I spend in my energy in a certain area of my life that kind of you know how much am I thinking about this is a really good way to think about it and you know if if you're spending a lot of your day thinking I feel fat well, it's a wasted opportunity for other thoughts in your life you know to, to more empowering thoughts and so it can be quite a consuming thing that's actually quite a waste of your life and so if we can move you forward from that then that's really powerful and what it creates for opportunity moving forward so 
how have you worked through some people with these types of kind of consumer yeah. thoughts? Well, I think the first port, uh, well, the first place is to is to figure out how serious it is. So, you know, and the first thing that we do, because we're not, I'm not a clinical psychologist, I don't specialize, I'm not technically um, uh, 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 able to specialize in treating disorders, but you do need to know what some of the symptoms are and whether someone is at risk or someone may have an disorder, you need to refer them. And so we know, for example, that if you're having thoughts and feelings about your own body or about your eating habits, I mean, this is just one of seven criteria that, that clinicians use to diagnose it. And if you're having those on a regular basis, and when we say regular basis, we're talking about daily, yeah. and, if you, and, uh, and when we say about, well, okay, I might think about how what I'm eating on a daily basis, and most athletes will probably do that. Mm-hmm. But then are you are you thinking about this for hours on end? So one of the things we're looking at, the frequency with which you do think and feel this way. And then we're looking about how that it affects other areas, your, other areas of your life. And so one of the big risk factors for endurance athletes, uh, you may have come across, it's called orthorexia. Yeah. And it's yeah. not yet recognized by some of the psychological authorities, but it probably will soon be in, in this sort of the diagnosed diagnostic manual that psychologists use and it's really once you start to develop healthy eating habits uh, a clean eat uh, a clean diet but that can go to an extreme and you become obsessed almost ritualistic about how clean your diet is to the extent that it ends up being quite actually unhelpful for you or unhealthy for you because your diet becomes so restrictive you're lo- you're not only minimize you're not only getting uh, limited macronutrient the main macronutrient but micronutrients are deficient as well and so it can go down this pipeline or de- go down this funnel where it starts to actually hurt you so what we're trying to do as coaches is figure out firstly do you need to see a real specialist to cope with it and so we have a little checklist we include it in the book and then if not then we just talk about okay you have these thoughts and you don't like them and they're not frequent enough to make it a clinical disorder but how do you start to deal with it so that's really our starting point and I think because it's mainly women who are likely to admit it even though the prevalence is higher of those sorts of things among women they're also more likely to admit it it starts with some very practical things that you can do our goal is not to say listen uh, we can't target the social cultural influences of body image that screams at women and girls to be thin on a regular basis that's incredibly important but that doesn't help you on a Thursday night mm. right when you're thinking about it and you're depressed or you're having a second glass of wine or you're hitting the, the candy jar or whatever it happens to be so one of the things that we can do is to look at what we call or psychologists call fat talk how you talk about your body with your friends or your teammates and one of the things that we know and fat talk is simply talking about your fatness or your feelings of fatness with others uh, with another athlete and this goes something like oh i feel so fat and what do you look at you you're a stick look at me if you think you're fat i'm fat yeah, look at this and yeah, i yeah. and that and on it goes and what we know is cathartic in the short term for athletes to do that but we know it's very destructive in the long term it actually makes the problem a lot worse so what we're trying to say is when you recognize yourself doing it or you recognize a teammate doing it, not to sort of pretend it's not there, but to try and have a discussion about, listen, let's talk about the things that your body can do versus the bo- what your body is. And we know that, uh, for example, we all have thoughts and feelings about our bodies or our eating that we don't want on a regular basis. But what we can do is to start to interject in how we discuss it and talk about it. And so cutting down fat talk among you or your athletes is really important. It's a first day and be see it as also a moral obligation that you have as a coach or as a teammate to say listen we know that this might feel good in the short term but ultimately it's reinforcing and we know that it leads to more unhealthy dietary practices and so on so that's just one little thing that we could all probably try to, to step in on I, I love that reference of um focus on what my body can do not what it is that's that's a really good perspective to kind of sit in isn't it 
yeah, yeah. I've really had, I've really had to focus on that as an athlete myself, you know, because um, ultimately, you know, I lost a bunch of weight and won three world titles. You know, it's like it validated it, mm. but as female, especially, you know, that really jacks up your hormones and a whole load of other things. And so, you know, ultimately you have to cycle your weight and that can be a really difficult thing as well to put the weight back on that you lost for a big race. Um, but, but where I step in, I think, is I talk to a lot of the athletes about it, like how I feel, what I've gone through. I try and empathize with them mm. so that they realize that how they're feeling is not crazy, that it's normal, that someone like me feels that way too. Uh, then I talk about little strategies that I've done to help myself. Um, and I think a huge thing boils down to um, the beauty of how it feels to feel good while you're training. Mm. And I think when you focus so much on weight and diet, that beauty starts to dissipate because the driving force is about something else, but also your body starts to deplete itself and eat itself up. So for me, it's the why. Why am I doing what I do? What brought me to the sport in the first mm -hmm. place? So, you know, just getting down to some of these basic kind of really passions uh, uh, to, to hold on to, you know, um, yeah. I think another thing to really contemplate is that if you think that the reason you, you know, like if, if your esteem comes from that moment of peak where you were the leanest you were, then it also diminishes yep. everything else that took you to get there. So, you okay. you know, that you know you, you can't actually enjoy the, the whole journey of the experience if there was only the weight that was the thing that got you there as well. Right, totally. And I think, you know, again, that's, you know, if you're looking at cycling weight, you know, there's a there's a there's a beauty in sort of nourishing your body, giving it rest and recovery, nourishing your mind and feeding it and getting it ready and feeling like there's some sort of battle ahead. Then gradually building up, your body starts to change, your muscles start to get stronger, you start to see the performance. Yeah, yeah, your body changes, it does get leaner and all those kinds of things for a big race. So it's enjoying every aspect mm. of it rather just what that peak brings as you say you know with the journey right mm -hmm. so so one one of the well you've got lots of areas here i've just got again the chapters in front of me one you've got to worry about is, is crossing the fear barrier the chapter is called um i don't like leaving my comfort zone so maybe talk about this one because i i you know the, you often see two like i teach a lot of group fitness classes um like spin classes and all that type of thing and and you always know the person who loves hurt you know you can just see that the easiest person to train it's almost like they're chasing something trying to find something in hurt, if you know what I mean. Like it's, they're trying to find their answers in hurt. And those are the easiest people to train because you just say, turn it up and they'll turn up 10 times. And then you've got people who, you, you know, as a motivator of trying to take people to another level, you just, you can never seem to get it out. And there's a, there's a fear of taking that risk. And uh, it yeah. seems to be that's what you're talking about here. So maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, so one thing about comfort zones, I mean, it's sort of a, this, these psychological fences that we erect, right, about around ourselves, about things that scare us, uh, that we're ultimately we're worried about being embarrassed or humiliated or shown in front of everyone else that you're inadequate or that you can't do something. And those those sorts of thoughts and feelings come from this limbic system, the chimp brain that we talk about in yep. the book quite a lot. And and one of the things, and you're, and for, those come to you for a good reason. Your body, you know, millions of years ago, when those sort of those emotions and drives were really created from that limbic system, they're they're they're, they're biochemical in nature. They're felt as impressions like uh, by those emotions, but they're trying to take you out of situations where ultimately that you they think that your life is at, at risk. 
And millions of years ago, being humiliated, embarrassed and inadequate actually did mean that your life was at risk because you were often ostracized from your troop. You had to forage on your own for food and then you would die probably a fairly lonely, uh, awful life. But nowadays, it's just these silly little events that we've got in our life, which are related to swim, biking and running, right, or doing fitness classes. So one thing is to is to try and help athletes understand Firstly, how we define failure is really critical as an athlete and a coach. And I think that many athletes start to think of failure as not being able to achieve or complete something, other people seeing them not being able to achieve or complete it. And more importantly, they worry about other people around you. They can all do it, but I can't. And they're all looking at me thinking, why are they here? They shouldn't be here. They're not a real athlete or they should have got no business being here. They're just a beginner. And so these sorts, and so what you really need to do is get to the bottom of some of these thoughts and, and start to redefine what failure means. And so we, we try and avoid using the word failure at all we talked to we use we use things like guidance so we use it all, all information that you get from an event a training session or a race is guidance for how to be better next time and we encourage people to fail and we make it okay to fail and in fact some of our training sessions are deliberately designed to fail that's why they're there if you haven't failed in this session you haven't done the session correctly yeah. so you're trying to get people used to it and to see that the world still turns people aren't laughing and pointing at you people are you know everyone is in the same sort of they're on the same suffer bus as it were they've all bought their tickets so we're trying to make that environment a lot easier to do and then to see that to pick up that information and then say how does this help us be better next time so there are some athletes who just you know don't like to be seen with snot all over their face or grimacing or there are some athletes that think that if I give everything uh, I've got and it's clear that I'm giving everything and it's still not enough because I don't do as well as I thought I would or other people, then what does that say about me? It says that I clearly must be a failure. Mm. So people hold back or they don't put themselves in environments really be learning experience rather than just an outcome so it's quite, it's kind of a challenge to get right but that comes in the in the design of classes as well and how you talk to athletes during those sessions i think as well it's also you know different people have um uh, their comfort zones are, are different for different people right so being out of a comfort zone for one of your spin class people might be the very fact that they're in a pair of lycra shorts mm. or that they to class and so they've already had a massive one by just showing up and doing it so you know I think that the, the bar is very different for different people uh, and, and, and that's something I think that I really respect and, and, and I think sometimes when I'm coaching athletes they'll come to me and they, they'll say oh am I good enough to get coached by you or do I deserve to get coached by someone like you and, and, and for me that's irrelevant do you have passion uh, for the sport that's enough and I think as long as uh, people have that level of passion and they're willing to, you know, inch out in towards, you know, what it what is outside their comfort zone, you know, then then that's good enough. And and I think that um, yeah, just just kind of appreciating that everyone is different with what that means. I mean, for some of my athletes, it's literally they're so scared of a group workout. They're so scared. So getting them to turn up is just everything you know, let alone the workout. I mean, even mm-hmm. I've had athletes where I'm like, just come and watch the workout. Come and see what it's about, mm-hmm. chat to people. They come and they watch and they chat. And I'm like, wow, oh, awesome job. Yeah. That's great. Well done for coming along. But, you know, and for someone like me, I'm like, I don't give a shit. I'll rock up to any group session because mm-hmm. that for me is not out of my comfort zone. Right. Mm-hmm. Out of my comfort 
zone is having three rest days in a row yeah. and someone feeding me, feeding me potato fries you know that for someone someone's comfort zone so you know it's, it's, <laughs> yeah that sounds great so, so for the individual it's really important to spend time understanding what that fear is yes right yes yeah okay absolutely. so you yeah. know when they are pushing beyond it and when to reward them and then maybe how to just kind of keep, and, keep and i think one important point is you know what we learned about the sort of the neuroscience of adversity and resilience and we know that your brain is physically changing in response to being put in situations that you on the face of it seem impossible or hard and scientists call this neuroplasticity you know there's there's neural changes in the brain that are happening to make you more able to cope with that in the future so so your comfort zone is constantly changing and the way to expand it or I should say shrink your comfort zone is to is to put yourselves in those situations you you're redrawing the lines in the sand of what you think that you can do and often it takes and you, if you can do it in groups that's great because you know people that suffer together usually stay together mm. and that builds that sort of camaraderie so I think that there's an element of learning that it, what it feels like to suffer and not fail uh, meaning that you're getting guidance for what to do differently and and then seeing it as this has been sort of a comfort zone workout. It's physically changing your brain so that you'll feel better about it next time. So it isn't about, oh my God, my pace is this, or I feel like this, my perceived exertion's here, and everything's already terrible, I knew it would be. That's not the goal. The goal is to get you to feel as though this is really difficult. I don't know how much longer I can put up with this. And then keep going. And then it's also part of, you know, that's the, the, the soft science of coaching as well, right? That encouragement and motivation. So you make it okay to do that. Mm. And you, you talk about coping with injury, which is um, is often a big problem for you know A type personalities like triathletes because they they create bigger problems because they don't deal with injury very well. You know, e.g., they keep you know exercising when they should stop or you know all of those types of things. And so, what are some of the things that you would say how to respond to kind of injury time so that we can actually be successful in looking after the body, but also not be a depression time for for those who are in right. sports. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I've dealt with a lot of pretty major injuries and continue to do so mm. with a lot of injuries too. So I've kind of created a, a system, if you will, whereby um, I use the energy that I might have put into that specific sport. I use that energy and I, I funnel it towards figuring out what's happening, what's going wrong, and how do I improve myself beyond that. So for instance, uh, most athletes that come to, to me with an injury, they just want to treat the symptoms. They just want to get a massage, ART, get a cortisone injection, something like that, that is purely masking what's going on. The first question that should be asked is, why did it happen? Mm. I mean, obviously, you've had a fall, you've tripped, you've hit something that's a little bit different, but we need to figure out from a biomechanical standpoint, yeah why did this injury occur? Because until you fix that, it's only going to reoccur or other injuries are going to come come about because of it. So making sure that you have people that you feel really confident to go to, like a biomechanist or a run analysis specialist or a, a bike fit person or, you know, all of the above, it, having that little team that you that are your go-to people that have been, you know, you believe in, that other people have recommended that you go see and educating yourself around, okay, where's the site of injury and what might be causing it? So you can get on you know i mean you can start doing google searches and really trying to understand and learn what's going on in the body so education is a huge piece once you've got that nailed then you look at the symptoms and you say okay how do i treat the symptoms is it ice is it compression is it heat is it injection therapy is it you know there's a whole host of things now that you can do and depending on your finances how much time you have you know i've had everything from prp injections which is blood yeah. platelet injections 
I've done stem cell injections. Um, I've done cold laser therapy. I mean, on and on and on and on. Um, so for me, though, that's a, a, a big cathartic thing is to really feel like I'm putting that energy mm-hmm. towards fixing myself and being very proactive. That That's a real positive thing yeah, I can yeah. garner out of an injury. Um, and then the third thing is, what exercise can I do that isn't going to compromise my comeback from injury? Um, so, for instance, for me, often it's a running injury. Um, so, quite often I can do things like whether it's elliptical training or I have a, a steer mill uh, at the gym, which is like a steer master yeah. thing, which is revolving. And so I actually run in it while holding it so I can, it can hold some of my body weight if it's a, you know, a body weight issue that's causing the injury, for example. And I can get great workouts in that damn thing it's like a strength it's like hill intervals and so essentially what I'm doing is I'm tiring myself out in other ways so maybe the bike volume goes up or the swim volume goes up uh, or I have a swim block where I can really you know improve on my swim technique so I'm always getting something positive back from what feels like a devastating Mm. A, a devastating scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, size dealt with me on on many occasions. <laughs> after, um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you what what did happen uh, a couple of years ago, actually, almost to the day. Um, I was in like great shape. I was racing uh, pr- professional mountain biking. I just won a US Pro mountain bike race, and I was due to fly out to Europe and do a bunch of World Cups. I was already out in Switzerland waiting for me, and uh, the day before I was supposed to fly out, I went over the handlebars and broke my left wrist Mm. and right hand, Um, and it was just devastating. I mean, I cried the rest of the day. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm particularly a crier, and it wasn't that it hurt. I was just so devastated Mm. and I I went to that ER I cried I cried I cried I cried I cried and as soon as I got home I said to uh, my buddy at the time I was in Colorado I said set up the bike set up the trainer I need to do something to know I can do it and 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 there I was all bandaged up and I spent two hours in the trainer just coming back from the hospital just to know that I could do it and that was it I didn't cry at that point I was like right okay how are we going to move forward and we ended up going up uh, into Mammoth up into altitude and spending a month uh, up there so I could get an altitude block uh, and I could set up my trainer looking out in the mountains in a beautiful environment so I you know I wasn't all oh I'm back in San Diego and I should have been here and I should have been there and you know so again it's just kind of reframing the negativity of what's occurred to mm-hmm. you. I think I was going to say that that when you when you have an emotional reaction to something that's quite traumatic to you, it doesn't have to be objectively traumatic. It's just because it influence you. It me the sport means a lot to you. You have a lot invested in it physically, financially, and socially. And something happens to derail your plans. Of course, you're going to have a negative emotional reaction. That's entirely normal. So one thing is that athlete, and we encourage athletes to wallow a little bit in those emotions as long as you don't let them persist and drag on for weeks and weeks and so we schedule we ask athletes to schedule wallowing time so because otherwise what happens with stress is it kind of creeps up in all your thoughts and feelings every day you're constantly thinking about and say right what i'm going to do thursday between 12 and 1 all i'm going to do is worry about my injury i'm going to bitch and moan i'm going to complain i'm going to write all the stuff down that's really on my and what you're doing is you're kind of outsourcing a place to actually so that you can it's like making a list when you're stressed Mm. and so if you give yourself a dedicated time to focus on those things whether it's what you're going to do biomechanically whether what you're going to just do have a bitch purge emotional moan 
get it in the diary so that you actually know that you've got time allocated so that you can work on it. But don't be alarmed the fact that you are having a reaction to it because it's entirely normal. We worry if it persists for a long period before we think that there's something more or deeper going on. Just to add to that, um, we'll kind of slightly off target, but um, it's interesting. I always think as well, because, you know, for the athletes, like, so con- life's so consumed by their sport, it's an opportunity for me to put time into other areas of my life through injury. You know, like, I, I play music, and when I was doing Ironman, if I got injured, it meant sucked, but it meant I could jump on my piano for a week, you know, and that was something that I didn't get to do a lot of, when, yeah. you know, so where's the other benefit outside of the sport? Right. Yeah. Right. I'm not. Perfect, yeah, and, and, and it's just a nice distraction and it's a way to develop other things. I'd say that probably it takes me about a week, trans- depending on how severe the injury, it will probably take like a week, you know, for me to be able to, right. you know, it's not like all of a sudden the next day you can say, right, I'm not going to be yeah. bothered that I'm, because generally you've organized this race and that race, you're supposed to be training with this body and that body, your whole social environment is caught up in it and everyone else has been out for the long ride and you haven't and, you know, all those kind of things. So, uh, But the the, the greater the the one-dimensionalness of your life is, meaning that there's sport in it, work, sleep, then the more it's going to hit you if something happens to direct. So this is what psychologists call your self-concept. And this is about the thoughts and beliefs and attitudes you have about yourself as a person and what's important. And all the things that feed into that are all, we all have different self-concepts. So for example, you have one as a, a husband, one as a wife, one as an employee, one as an athlete, one as a parent, one as a blah, and on and on it goes. And yours as a musician. So all these feed into your self-concept. So it's just a bit like an investment portfolio, right? If you have one stock takes a hit, there are other things to keep things buoyant. But if you've got all your eggs in that one basket and it's feeding, your self-concept has only one input and it's coming from your sport well lo and behold you're going to be in for a pretty nasty surprise when you have an injury so you can be preemptive about this you can look at athletes and see what else they've got going on in their life before they get injured and try and encourage them to get other things mm-hmm. going for them as a way to protect their self-concept when and if they do get injured um just kind of getting towards the end here but i suppose a couple of questions i have is for those people you've worked with and they've been successful in creating change what have been the keys like i know we've got the 13 areas and, and you know yeah. i highly recommend the book and people we go we, we've only really touched on a couple of things today but um you know like as, as someone who's trying to help people which you guys are doing your, your real measure is do people change and you know and so and obviously you've worked with people and you help them change so there's common themes that come through for those people who actually work through some of this stuff and actually have moved forward yeah, yeah. i'd say for for us it's probably um the biggest aha moment is when we educate them that the thoughts and feelings they have are perfectly normal and here's why. So this is the fight that's going on in your brain. This is why you have that fight from a um, you know sort of mm-hmm. from a science you know right, science right. background a neuroscience background, and uh, as a consequence you know the first protocol is they don't feel crazy. And then we start looking at, right. you know, what are those thoughts and feelings? Why do they have them? And uh, going through the solutions. So I that. think, so I think teaching, giving athletes a mental model. And this is our chimp, professor brain, and yeah. computer brain analogy metaphor. Giving them a mental model for understanding why they feel the way they do is half of the battle. In fact, it's even a little, um, the little sort of cliche in psychotherapy is self-awareness is the cornerstone of change. Right. Mm. So the more you can get people to be aware of what they're doing and why or what they're thinking and feeling and why many athletes 
organically find strategies to help themselves once they have a sense of, oh, okay, that's normal, that's why, well, this is why that's happening, so this strategy would work, and that's why that doesn't. So having people, giving them a kind of a framework to understand why their head is feeding them these thoughts is a really, is, a, is an absolute critical uh, a critical first step. Absolutely. And I also think that um, a lot of a lot of people, the thoughts and feelings they have when they're in their sport, they don't realize that it, that it's foundational, that it, that it's coming from other areas of their lives. So once you give them that level of awareness, all of a sudden, you know, whether it's issues of I feel fat or, or oh, I'm just not good enough, I can't really go train with that group, you know, I'm too slow. Well, what do you mean by you're too slow? And why does that matter if you feel like you are too slow? And you start asking the big why right. questions, mm. which get to bigger foundational issues that they have going on in their world and that's when the sport becomes right. kind of a therapy and that's when the changes become more um profound and also uh, cement themselves a lot right. more right um, and yeah i mean we've had athletes that have changed relationships that have changed jobs gotten new jobs gone in completely different directions with their lives because they've with gone their, through this right. self-discovery awareness and i think the second one of the the second sort of uh, aha moments for athletes is having an understanding that what's important certainly when it comes to performing is about staying in the moment executing a process right so we say to when you ask athletes what's the most important thing this morning or for this race oh i said i need to get a, a qualifier for this i need to go on a podium i need to pr this i need to be that person i need to keep my ranking no that's all those things are outcomes what the most important thing that you can do is how do you best execute the process of swimming biking running as efficiently and as fast as possible in the moment and what that means is that it any one time, the only two things that are in your control are your effort and your attitude. That's all you can control. When the gun goes off, all the everyone else, though, you, whether you get hit, knocked, or you go, all you control is your effort and attitude. Okay, you've got tactical decisions and you've got things about your nutrition, but effort and attitude. So, and what we try and do is we teach athletes reminders or how to cue in to what that actually means in the moment, so that you're not thinking, "I'm only, you know, three miles into the run, so that's all that goal that I want is already out the window. What's the point anymore? I might as well just soft pedal. I might as well just easy, blah blah." And on you go, and then you find you're mentally throwing in the towel and so on. So trying to stay in the moment and focus on the effort and attitude and it's hard to do that it's easy to say but it's hard to do that and the basis of that the psychological base of that is mindfulness mm -hmm. so meditation training mindfulness training are the skills that you need to be able to stay in the moment when it's hurting when it's suffering or you've got all this intrusive stuff telling you that it's going to shit or it's not it's not going to happen today and all those stuff you've got to stay in the moment and that mindfulness is the way that you do it um, just just on a personal level, what what areas are the ones that you both struggle with the most on an on an individual level? Yeah, uh, me would be definitely the body image that I feel fat, uh, exercise addiction. Uh, those are the two big yeah, those are the two biggest ones for me to be honest. Um, when I was younger, of course, I definitely had that. I just want to harden the f up and you know a bunch of other ones. But I think through my journey, I've really sort of mastered a lot of it. And you know that's how we essentially built the book, right? These were all issues that yes, our athletes had, but the majority of them I've had. Uh, or continue to deal yeah, with, and yeah. then I've, I've, I've come up, while I've been out there across the last 25 years, we've come up with solutions for them. So yeah. I would say probably all of them. Yeah. <laughs> mine, is, mine is probably the comfort zone thing about you know entering races or events where you don't feel quite prepared for, or you feel as though I'm, it needs to, I, everything needs to be perfect if I'm gonna do that, and, uh, and, and actually getting into a mindset that you, you need to start 
you know, getting on the start line and you're, the cards you've been dealt that morning are what they are and then effort and attitude all the way. But it's still a, it's a continual battle. Yeah, and, and I think obviously the thing you want to encourage is that these are work-ons. You know, you, you, the book's great. The book, The Brave Athlete, Come the, or Calm the Fuck Down, uh, and Rise to the Occasion, is, um, I highly recommend it. I really, I think it's, I'm only halfway through it, but I really, I like what you're doing with the book and I think there's a lot of value. But you've got to do the work, don't you? You know, like people have got to make sure, sure you know, like they're putting the time in to, you know, you identify reading the book, oh, this is me, and other areas you might not identify with so much, but you'll be able to go, okay, well, if this area is really the thing that I need to progress on, you can use the tools, put the time aside. And because the thing I, 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 we can change, and I think right. if, you've, if you've sat in something for a long time, you almost identify that this is who I am and this is just the way it's going to be right. forever. But we can change if we're willing to do the work. And so that's why your book's such a great resource mm-hmm. and a tool to help us change and then you know commit to doing the work really isn't it mm-hmm. totally so, and yeah. just you know even bit by bit even take one chapter one tiny little exercise and if that's all you do in a whole year it doesn't you know it's it's you know bit by bit some people are great they'll do the whole thing but other you know even if it's one tiny little thing you know yeah mm-hmm. and it's no different than a physical skill i mean yeah. right. it's that you don't expect to be a great tennis player overnight you don't expect to be a great swimmer overnight you have to put the work in and just that the, the, the exercises that you do for your head look and feel slightly different than they do to become a better swimmer well the book again the brave athlete uh come the fuck down or, or do you, what do you have when you're doing like proper pr where you, you're not allowed to swear what do you say do you say if do you well, everyone's different, you know. It depends on the audience, eh? You know, I mean, I'll I'll drop the the f bomb whenever, you know. That's that's my nature, my Scottish lassie. But uh, yeah, we have to be a wee bit. We did a talk at a, a Catholic girls' school, so oh, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that went down well. <laughs> I went down like a storm. You that's know? right. But, uh, Yes. Calm the dickens down. Doesn't have the same uh, ring to it. <laughs> well, and and there is a website. What's the website? It's uh, braveheartcoach.com. Okay, um, braveheartcoach.com. You can order it through there. Or it's also on you know, bookstores and Amazon, and Amazon and all the other places. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, guys. I'll put a link Great, to that in the show notes. And thanks for your time today. It's absolutely awesome. Thanks, oh, Bevan. And, uh, one last thing, Bevan. Yeah, uh, we it. have a smog test if athletes are interested. So uh, they can just fill out our smog test. Everyone know what that means. Yeah, it's, it's, like a, yeah it's like a, you know, <laughs> basically they fill it out with a bunch of uh, uh, questions and then I'll give them a call, no strings attached, chat through their training, see how they're doing and, yeah. and that's that. And they go to the, your website, the Brave Athlete. That's on our website, yeah. It's like your little, uh, little uh, check up from the neck up. Check up from the neck up. There you go. I love it. I love it. Hey, thanks for your time, guys. <laughs> Right, guys. So that is the brave athlete, calm the f down, and rise to the occasion. And I'll have a link to the show notes, uh, to the book in the show notes, so you can go there and grab it from there. Uh, I'll, I'll quickly because it is a pretty great athlete. Now, it is based on an athlete, um, but I've got to say, a lot of these lessons are transferable. A lot of these lessons, and the thing I talk about, like I talk about in the interview, is that it's a really good book because it's got the tools. So. Sometimes you get books that it can really teach you a concept, you know, that here's an area where we struggle and here's maybe why we struggle. But I always want to know how I'm going to move through this. And I've got to say, like, they do one tool, which I talk, when I did the show a couple of weeks ago around Fake It Till You Make It, and that, this book influenced that. And it's one thing I've been using with my business. I've basically been using a, a business somebody who I see as a role model in business to think about my business and I put myself in their shoes and pretend about how would they look at my business and it's really helping me it really is you know like that kind of 
faking it till I make it. So I like this book because they don't just say, hey, here's a problem. They say, here's a problem, here's a solution. So I just thought I'd quickly talk you through the chapter titles just to give you an idea of what this book's about. Um, So the first is Hello Brain, and it kind of spends a bit of time just teaching you around how the brain works. Then it's got, I wish I felt more like an athlete, and this is this kind of tracking the floor, thinking around your athletic identity. I don't think I can. This is about, this is chapter number three, building your confidence and self-belief. Number four is setting goals is not your problem. The secret of doing is the thing we want to think about here. Number five is other athletes seem tougher, happier, and more badass than me. The power and peril of comparison. Number six is I feel fat, dealing with body image in a world of athletes. That's actually a big one. You know, body image, let's be honest, is a lot of problem for a lot of people. And you think that athletic fit people would not have a problem with body image, but actually it's, it's quite a big problem in endurance sport at least. And actually in lots of environments where people actually have pretty great bodies. Chapter seven, I don't cope well with injury, how to respond to setbacks, big and small. Chapter eight, people are worried about me, exercise and de- uh, dependence and the incessant need to do more. That's quite a common one. I've talked about how I had that problem as a young man. Uh, number nine is I don't like leaving my comfort zone. How to cross the fear barrier. Number 10 is when the going gets tough, the tough leave me behind, resisting the urge to quit. Uh, number 11, how to harden the F up, learning to embrace the suck. Number 12 is I keep screwing up, developing Jedi concentration skills to become a better athlete. And number 13 is I don't handle pressure well. How to cope with stress, anxiety, and expectations on race day. So... I know this is very much focused on an athlete, but again, I think it's a pretty good book for everybody. So you can check that out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes at bevanjamesisles.com. If you want to become a patron on the show, just go to bevanjamesisles.com again, and you can see there's a link to Patreon. Go on there, go through the process, and you just donate as much as you want. Each time I put a show, you, that amount gets contributed to the show. Um, that's pretty much today's show. I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks' time. I've got a subject that I've been I'm actually reading another book right now, which I'm finding really powerful. And it's given me some stuff to talk about. So I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. If you can do anything for me, spread the word on the show. If you really get value out of the show and you think it's helping, I actually got a lovely email from... Wait, so I'm going to pause. I'm going to back and see because I'm going to name them. Actually, it was from my new patron. I didn't realize that when they, they, they I didn't, you know, put two and two together. But from my new patron, just saying that they've listened to the show in the past... And they, they realized that it's time for some change again. And they came back to the show and they're saying it's really helped them on their journey back. So Esther, it's really, I was really, I love reading the emails like this, that, you know, the, the, this thing that we share, this show and, and the things that I do help people move forward. And she's just saying that, um, yeah, this show really helps. And that's cool. So if it helps you, you can help me by just spreading the word about the show or go on iTunes or Stitcher or any of the areas, ways you get the podcast and just put a review up. It really does help. Um, yeah, and spread the word because, I don't know, I, I want to be someone who's making a difference and so you can help me make a difference. Anyway, I'm going to be back in a couple weeks from now so you can see me then. Other than that, let's rock on. It's quarter day and I'll see you in a couple weeks' time. See you, bye.